Welcome. You're listening to a Mr. Thrive Media Production. Stu Levy is one of the most eclectic people that we've had on the podcast to date. This is a man who, yes, was born in Los Angeles and, yes, has a part to do in the entertainment publishing world, but grew up in D.C., completed his studies in Japan, and has been all over the world. He is a bit of an athlete, he's a bit of a foodie, but his biggest claim to fame is that he truly introduced manga to the West, that this man was the bridge between Japanese culture and America. Stu Levy runs Tokyo Pop, an anime and manga publishing company that produces content for American audiences. Stu currently lives in Germany. As a matter of fact, this interview was done virtually. This was a huge opportunity and a huge privilege. I am just so thankful to have had Stu on the show. I'm really excited for you guys to hear what Stu has to say about his world travels, his pursuit of entrepreneurship, and so much more. Also, next week on September 28th at 6 p.m. Pacific Daytime, we have our Dapper Party. This event is going to be super suave. We're all going to be looking super fly in our suits, and we can't wait to have you. This is our second time doing this theme because it was such a big hit last year, and we are so excited to have you guys. Be sure to register at the link to be in the show notes of this episode. Without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy. You have stumbled upon the Mr. Thrive Podcast, where together we discover established artists. Entrepreneur, writer, and investor, Stu Levy. Stu, welcome to the podcast. I'm blessed to have you here. It's great. To, you're calling you, all the way from Germany today. Yeah, absolutely. I'm here in Berlin, and um, because of the magic of technology, we can have a chat um, in real time. Exactly. And you know, COVID or no COVID, this would have to happen over uh, Squadcast, over over this uh, virtual platform, just because you're so far away. You know, we've one of the things that you guys don't see on the other end is all the coordination that happens behind the scenes. And so Stu and I have been kind of doing this game of phone tag and a little bit of a little bit of a, a dance back and forth just trying to figure out what's the best time. So to actually have him here is really uh, a blessing in the sense that I just feel a, a great sense of privilege to have you here. So Stu, thank you oh, for joining us today. You humble me, Chaz. I really appreciate it. And um, I've listened to your show and it's awesome and tons of fun. So uh, I've been really looking forward to it. I'm glad we're finally able to make it happen. Incredible. So, Stu, we're going to introduce you in one quick second. But first, quite frankly, I got to warm up. You got to warm up. So we're going to do our season three trivia warm up. Here we go. Are oh, you feeling God. good? Are you feeling oh, good about no. this? I, I, all right. So I suck at trivia. So if I get any questions right, it will be a miracle. Uh, you know what? I think I think that you will. I think that you will. Okay. So. Give me a softball. Uh, there's a few softballs and there's a few, there's a few, there's a few none. So, so we'll see. And, and a lot of these, a lot of it's based on, on your website, Tokyo Pop, which we'll talk about in a second. Okay. But let's start with question one. All right. What Disney movie inspired the use of large eyes in manga comics? Is it A, Dumbo, B, Peter Pan, C, Bambi, or D, Alice in Wonderland? All right. That's, that is kind of a softball, I have to say. C. Bambi. Boom. Nailed it. Okay. So that was a trend that was created by Osama Tezuka. Am I saying that name correctly? That is correct. Tezuka. Yeah. He is the godfather of manga and anime. And he created Astro Boy, which is one of his major claims to fame outside of really just starting it. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. All right. So question two. In Japan, what is one of the most common ways people discover new manga? Is it A... People find new comics off of the ground. B, 
Little free libraries committed to manga are scattered across Japan. C. It is a common gift as a sign of wisdom and respect. Or D. It is purchased from local bookshops. Wow, it's actually kind of all four of those have some <laughs> semblance of truth. So,、um, but can I add in an E? What's your E? E is through very, very thick phone book sized magazines that have 15 to 20 to 30 different mangas in them, and、um, they're serialized chapter by chapter. And that's the primary way that. People discover manga in Japan. Very interesting. So, so the, when I was when I was doing the research on this, that's not what was said. It was actually. Do, do you want to take a guess from the from the selection I gave you? Um, it sounds like. So the first was picking up picking them up off the ground, which I have done before. I have literally done that in Japan before. The second was what a gift. I'm trying to remember what the second one was. What was the second option? Second one was little free libraries committed to manga are scattered across Japan.、Oh. So, there's this may or may not be the thing that whoever wrote that article had in mind, but there are manga cafes. They call them manga kisaten throughout Japan, where you can actually pay like five dollars per hour, get all the coffee you want, all the drinks you want, and read any manga. It's kind of like a library. So that is also,、um, I would say, true. Okay. If that's meant by, if that's what they meant by that, so manga cafes. Okay. Way, and then the third way was. Third one I, is it is a common gift as a sign of wisdom and respect. I mean, honestly, that's kind of the least, the least realistic of all of them. People are reading manga. Everybody's reading manga, so you wouldn't really give it to somebody else as a gift. Okay. And the last one, it is just simply purchased at local bookshop. Yeah, I mean that's everybody certainly buys manga at the、right. store. It's definitely one way to do it, including at Seven Elevens. That's one of the most. Common distribution. Yeah. Right. Right. So, so, what was the answer? Well, do you want to take a guess? I mean, if it's those four choices, I would say probably D. D.、Uh, so, <clears> actually, <throat> the from the article that I read,、uh, it's that people find it、uh, new comics off the ground all the time. And you and you even said that you're a proponent of that. You've picked up some. I've done it. I mean, definitely, especially on the train. What happens is these big, thick、uh, manga magazines that I mentioned. A lot of the times, because they're super cheap, they're like you know two dollars. Right.、And、people will read the whole thing. They'll just leave it on the train. Somebody else will get it. They'll leave it at, at like a like a local you know fast food joint, and then other people pick them up and read them. They're kind of like passalongs, and that's probably what that writer meant. And so I could see that, yeah. But it is these these big thick magazines. Those are like the source. Very cool. Very cool. Awesome. Well, perfect. Yeah, I I find that fascinating when you find just a a comic off the ground and that's how you discover it. And it was, you know, there's no statistic on this from the article that I was reading, but it's enough to the point where you know you get over thousands of people taking a note taking note of this per day in Japan, which is just kind of beautiful in my mind. Being able to just pick、sure. literature off the floor and get into a new story. Uh, by simply, you know, getting lost in the city, if you will, which is one of my favorite things to do when I travel, is just simply getting lost. It's amazing. Well, I can do that. I can do that whether I intend to or not. It's very easy for me. Yeah. All right. So for our third question. Yep. Manga is typically printed in black and white. The manga that inspired Triangle Staff is a popular printed in color novel. What is that manga? What is the manga that inspired T.S. Called? Is it A. Dark Moon Diary, B. Bezengast, C. Colorful, or D. Cat and Mouse? Wow, I would say. Oh God, that's a bit of a tough one. 
Finally, I got Mikhail with a tough one. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I, I, I could see that that I don't actually recall who said that. Maybe it was um, Marty from Biz and Gas B. But I'm kind of leaning towards Dark Moon Diary, to tell you the truth. All right. Well, the answer was Colorful C. <laughs> But that was, you did so you you did incredibly well I gotta say and and I learned I actually learned a lot just now from that trivia myself so that was that was rewarding for me too so thank you for that <laughs> yeah well I told you I wasn't good at trivia well the, what's amazing is that Triangle Staff was adapted into six into a sixteen episode anime television series is that correct is that what I understand yeah. Pre- yeah. pretty amazing yeah. but that's not that's not we're close to the longest anime right. No way, not even close. No, not even close. I think I, I would, would think that probably One Piece is the longest one. One Piece, okay. I think One Piece has like literally, I'm not exaggerating, not over 900 episodes. Got it. So, so really, my my roommate should be hosting this episode because I found out that my roommate is a huge anime fan, and he was telling me that Monster is 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 up there with one of the long ones as well. That's just huge. Monster, yeah. Well, Monster is really good, but not even close in terms of number of episodes. Okay. One Piece, I just checked it. 989 incredible wow wow Crazy. really yeah. how, yes. how long are the episodes themselves 30 minutes okay wow oh my god so yeah. you have dedicated teams of those shows that just become i imagine family over time because you're you're in that setting for so long committing yeah, to a story it's, it's, it's kind of like the simpsons i mean i think the Simpsons. i mean the the story is completely different but the i think the simpsons has been what was it, 25 seasons or something like that? I mean, One Piece is sort of like that. It's been so many seasons. Um, must be like 20 seasons or so. I don't know exactly how many, but it's been going on for a long time. That's amazing. That's amazing. So I, I need to know about your journey into anime because I, I got to imagine it kind of goes hand in hand with travel being how well-traveled you are. You're, you were from America before, right? I was born and raised in Los Angeles. You were born and raised in Los Angeles. What part, by the way? In Northridge, Northridge. Okay, gotcha. Got the valley. Okay, yeah. yeah. I used to, I used to live in Reseda. To just geek out too much here, but I just checked, and The Simpsons, for reference, okay. is seven hundred and six episodes. So One Piece is actually two hundred and sixty episodes more than The Simpsons. Wow, that's Crazy. that's amazing. Wow, thirty-two seasons. The Simpsons was thirty-two seasons. So that means One Piece is probably like forty seasons. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. that that's insane. I can't imagine committing. And how many years is that? Well, in Japan, typically One Piece is a it's a little bit tricky. Usually, twenty six episodes per year is is common. But I think with One Piece, they cranked out some years. They even cranked out like fifty two episodes in a season. So short answer, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I would bet it's close to twenty years. That'd be my bet. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. So there's a lot there, oh, and and you have. And again, I can't emphasize enough that there must be these teams that have been committed since the beginning. Uh, of course, you're going to have new people that come into the, these kind of production settings. Uh, and, yeah. you know, you're going to create something of a family in that kind of work environment, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, these guys, this is like their life work. So 21 years, I just checked it. So I was pretty close. In the projects, that, in the projects that you've taken on, have you ever gotten really close to a, a crew like that? Um, I mean, not like that. That's, that's sort of like, that's one piece, for instance, is so world famous that it is kind of like, you know, as famous as the Simpsons or as famous as like Avengers, you know? So when you get to that level of franchise, 
Um, if I had been doing that, you would have introduced me as the producer or whatever of that because it would be that famous. You know what I mean? So, so I've done all kinds of different uh, projects, producing anime, publishing manga, writing, doing all kinds of things. And I've been very, very blessed to be involved in a lot of stuff, but I have not yet had, and maybe I'm too old now to have it, a massive franchise that just goes on forever. Right. So, so wait, let's, let's go back though. Cause I want to, I want to go back to you're, you're from Los Angeles. You're now right. in Germany. What happened now in I'm between there? there? What happened in between? Well, there was about 52 years in between those two things. I'm 50, I just turned 54. Um, but basically, long story short, I was getting tired of being in LA when I uh, was in college and I wanted to go away. So I went to DC for grad school. I, I became a lawyer. And then that was not far away enough and I wanted to go overseas. And when I was a kid, I'd grown up more or less in a Korean household. My next door neighbor was Korean and their family was huge, seven brothers and sisters. So whatever was happening at their house was always way more fun than at my house. So I was there all the time, all day, all night. We were playing like Nintendo. It was just a, a, a madhouse of, of stuff. So I grew up kind of in an Asian family. And when I graduated from law school, I wanted to study and I picked Japan. And this was before sort of it was a thing. Um, and um, went to Tokyo, absolutely fell in love with the culture, blew my mind and could never, ever sort of like escape it again. It, it just I was bitten by the bug and um, kept coming back and eventually started this this business. That's amazing. So what was when you started the business, what was the greatest difficulty? That's a great question. Um, there were so many difficulties. And I think, honestly, and I don't want to you know, sound like you know, a generational snob, but I think we had it harder starting a business back in my era. I'm a Gen Xer. I'm the forgotten generation here. And everybody talks about, you know, hey, Boomer or, or Millennial or whatever, or Gen X or Gen Z. But I, we're, my generation, we're like, well, you know, we did exist too. But we were... We were never respected ever, so it's no surprise that even now people don't even think of Gen X. Um, but I was I'm a Gen Xer, and so you know, back in our our day, it was really hard to start a business. You had a lot of red tape, you didn't have the internet to you know go online and see how you do things. And I started my business in Japan, which made it even harder because there was no English books explaining how to do it. So I had to read everything in Japanese and file all my paperwork in Japanese. So that was super hard, just getting it started. But then I would say the next hardest thing was convincing distributors, um, retailers, and all kinds of gatekeepers in America that they should take a chance on Japanese um, pop culture. And was anyone else doing it at that time? Not really. There were some very, very small projects and things that did exist. So I, I can't say we were the 100% first uh, group that did it, but we were the first group to really popularize it. And so there were just kind of very underground um, activities happening. And we, we, what I wanted to do was I wanted to take it to the mass, to the mainstream. And so, yeah, it was gatekeeper after gatekeeper saying, hey, we have our American pop culture, Hollywood, why would we need this stuff from Japan? Nobody, and, and back then, it's hard to think of it now because 
um, now everybody knows that Japan is a place for amazing pop culture. So it's become so ubiquitous and um, there's so much love and respect for Japanese um, storytelling that it's hard to imagine that there was a time when people in America were like, this is crap, who needs this? But that's how it was back then. And you know, I have a hard time envisioning that because I, as someone who obviously is from a younger generation, I am a millennial, you know, uh, coming, yeah. coming across anything when it comes to Japanese art, I know to, to take it with a certain, uh, certain uh, amount of respect, uh, a great right. amount of respect for that matter. So it's hard for me to imagine a time when you had difficulty introducing that concept. I can relate, though, just because, you know, you and I, we met through ProVisors, which is, a, for those who don't know, is, is the, one of the largest networks in, in America. It's a pretty prestigious place to be, and I'm very thankful to be a part of it, right? So that's how I met Stu, was through ProVisors. And in that setting, you know, I find myself all the time, as a podcast producer, I'm, the first, I'm, I'm, I'm pro probably the youngest member of ProVisors right now. Uh, oh, other, really? Yeah, probably, probably. Cool. And the other part as well is that um, I'm the only podcast producer. Uh, mm. And so I, if I'm, I'm in a position where I have to uh, explain why this is a necessity for businesses. People are not fully understanding all the time what a podcast, what a piece of content creation can really do for the authority, for the branding, for the messaging of what they do. So I can relate to that in terms of, of, of being completely new to that. And I'm still in that phase yeah. of meeting the gatekeepers like you were. So this, this for me, unexpectedly is kind of like seeing a little, like a great parallel here. I'm really looking forward to kind of exploring a bit more. Yeah, I would say one more thing that was a challenge. I mean, there's so many, but one, one thing that I, you made me think of it right now, remember it, is in Japan, who you work for is kind of like almost your entire pride, your, 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 it's sort of like uh, the, more than a car you drive, more than anything like that, it's who you work for, the name of the company that you work for, that is the most important thing. And so if you work for a company that nobody's heard of, your respectability, you, um, the, all of that goes down, your prestige, everything goes down significantly. And so I, when I started my company, I actually had a, I was being headhunted by Microsoft, which at the time, I mean, Microsoft's huge again, but at the time they were the number one tech company. This was like pre-Facebook, pre-Google, you know, the, that era when Microsoft really controlled everything. And they were recruiting me to run their brand new um, Microsoft network. This was how old I am, the beginning of Microsoft network in Japan. And um, I ended up saying no and starting my own company. And if you have a Microsoft business card or now Google or, you know, Apple or something like that in Japan or one of the Japanese companies, Sony, everybody will meet with you. You know, it's, it's like, you just don't have problems getting in the door. You may not close a deal, but getting in the door is not even, not even a problem. Um, but when, you know, I had my business card, Tokyo pop, people be like, what? Who are you? You know, they couldn't even pronounce it. They're like Tokyo Top. I'm like, no, Tokyo Pop. <laughs> Tokyo Cop? Like, no, Tokyo Pop, for God's sakes. 
it, 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 that was a struggle. Just trying to get people to show you enough respect to even take a meeting was was a, a challenge. I, I can relate to that too. People call me Thrive Media all the time. Like, no, it's Mr. Thrive Media. Mr. <laughs> Thrive Media. It's no Thrive. Like, you, buddy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> this is why I have a trademark lawyer is because it's already a Thrive Media, okay? Like, chill, okay? <laughs> Stop. Don't do that. You're going to get a lawsuit on my hand. But <laughs> no, but I got to say that I have a ton of respect for the fact that you came into a place and, and kind of started, you know, you were the, the bridge between uh, Japanese uh, literary culture, graphic, graphic novels and whatnot in the world of anime, bringing it to America. When did you start to see the balance shift where people started to actually kind of come in droves to make the, the, the that really brought in the, the market that is, that is manga and anime today? Well, yeah, I mean, in the end, it was really, I'd say, a long, steady path with various kind of fits and starts. It wasn't like one event happened that, boom, suddenly um, everybody knew what it was. But it did, there were a lot of wins, tons of challenges, tons of losses, but then kind of wins along the way. And those wins all added up to even... We're the first generation. Tokyo Pop is part of the first generation of the wave of Japanese pop culture. What's happening currently, and this is kind of after our generation kicked it all off and then another generation took it and run with it, ran with it. They they say that now Gen Z, 95% of Gen Zers um, have watched anime, which is crazy when you think about that. Back in the era that we were doing it, it was, I think we did a, a study once and we found out that 10% at our peak, 10% of um, young people in America at the time, which would be millennials, knew what anime was. So it went from 10 per, it flipped basically over the past 20 years. Um, you know, now you've got pro footballers, you've got celebs, you've got influencers, you know, everybody's uh, got their favorite anime show. Um, and so, and manga is, of course, the source material for anime. So just like you have comic books in the U.S. You have your you know, X-Men and and um, you know all the Avengers and this kind this kind of stuff. And then ultimately Marvel makes these massive movies that everybody uh, goes and sees. It's similar in that respect in Japan. Most everything starts as a manga, a comic book, and then it turns into an anime. Which top ones will become like we we spoke about, like One Piece, where you have almost a thousand episodes, and everybody, uh, not only in Japan but worldwide, um, a lot of people have watched and know about it so um basically it was a long steady path i would say over the last 30 years amazing long, long but it but it's long though and there's there's a lot of no's before you get a yes and that's you know part of just the journey of being an entrepreneur and i you know it's, it's the constant cycle of that you know you're going through um so many iterations of no, no, no. Yes. Did you ever, there's this old, what was that? I think that's from a Mel Brooks movie. Mel Brooks, the, the, the classic, classic comedian. He had this one scene where, um, I think it was in history of the world part one. Okay. I remember like an old 1980s movie and the, um, there, the, there was the, the woman in the movie was trying to pick who would be her escorts. And this was kind of like in the Middle Ages era. And so there were all these eunuchs there. And 
she was like, they were wearing, they're pretty much naked, except they were wearing like feathers over their crotches. And she would, there was a little dance she would do. And she, there was all about 20 or 30 of them, 30 of them all lined up. And she would go down uh, each of them and say, flip them all up and say, no, no, no. And then she'd flip up this one and she'd look and she'd say, yes, no, 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 yes, yeah. no, no, yes. That, that's that's kind of what uh, trying to build a business is. No, 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 yes. It's a great metaphor. And you know, the one, one of the major differences that I picked up on from what you were describing was that in a certain way, because of this gift of the internet, it was easy for me to make a business. I really could just say I had a business and then started to pursue it with the internet and started networking like crazy. And then that's how I started to get my clientele was through, you know, referrals and, and what, and whatnot. Um, and, and, and then learning sales acquisition. So there are certain parts of it in terms of saying, you know, everyone has a business in air quotes. Right. And it right. reminds me, uh, there's this, there's this kind of degrading saying that I, I kind of love it and I kind of hate it. I have a hate love relationship with this expression, but, um, I've heard people say that there are entrepreneurs and there are wannapreneurs. And there are people who, you know, say that they have businesses and then there are people who have businesses, right? And there's a, there's a really big distinction in there. You're describing kind of the authority and reputation with Microsoft. And, you know, when, when you declined joining Microsoft, was that a difficult decision for you? And then when you continued to pursue it, did you ever have that self-doubt with Tokyo Pop that it was just too difficult to introduce to America? So the first one, as far as Microsoft goes, it wasn't easy, but in the end, I thought to myself, Bill Gates started his own company. And if he had taken a job with IBM, he wouldn't, we wouldn't have Microsoft. So if you want to do something and you have a passion, go for it. And, and that really, I mean, I was in my twenties at the time, but I just, it wasn't even an option in my mind. I was like, I want to do what I want to do. I don't want to go work for a big company, you know? So in a way that was pretty easy. Oh, and it's pretty, it's kind of a fun little uh, side story on that one. The headhunter who was trying to get me in there, when I said, no, we were on the phone. And this was back when you couldn't do international Zooms for free. Phone calls were, were expensive internationally. Um, and this guy had called me up and I was telling him no. And for 20 minutes, he went on a tirade basically completely cussing me out and explaining to me or not explaining um yelling at me uh that i would regret it for the rest of my life and i'll never amount to anything and then about 15 years later i remember tokyo pop we were kind of at our one of our peak phases and my number two guy uh, um, our coo john parker came to me and said hey we're looking at using this recruiter just want to get your sign off. This is his uh, resume, uh, his uh, company brochure. And I looked and it was the same guy. And I'm like, hell no, we are not hiring this guy as our recruiter. Karma, you know? So, uh, so basically saying no to Microsoft was for me, not hard. And I didn't really ever regret that particular decision. But in terms of having times when I regretted or, or not regretted, but had self-doubt oh yeah all the time all the time you know that that's it's I, for me it was you know I, I think still i have my insecurities and my self-doubt about things um you know i i believe that's probably human nature i i think that's 100 uh, percent true and, and if there's one thing i've learned in this past couple of years of starting my business is that you kind of have to be a masochist 
to to stand alone and, and build your business. You have to make rejections oh, yeah. like the offer that Microsoft gave because you're, you're, you're trying to be your own business. You can't be your own business and work for Microsoft at the same time. You can't do that. I've been given job opportunities, not of that stature, of course, but, you know, along the way where someone knew me and they wanted to give me a job because they, they you know, definitely, you know, have a certain level of respect for you, which I'm eternally grateful sure. for, right? But uh, I decided, no, I'm not going to... Uh, I'm not going to take that up just because this thing right here can really build and I can, I can stay more protected here than I ever would be if I had a job. Cause my, my big, my big fear is, am I protected? You know, mm. will I get laid off again? You know, right, right, right. you know, will I, will I have a boss that'll treat me horribly again? And, uh, you know, what are these different things that'll happen? So this is my way of protecting myself. Uh, which is yeah, great. Because you're, you're, you're giving yourself a certain amount of self sustainability. Right. You know, I mean, nothing's over 100% protected, but if you know how to have your back against the wall and and push forward, even in that situation, and you're alone and you're and you've done that in the uh, there's no other weapon. There's no other experience that I think gives you as much confidence and strength as something like that. Absolutely. Now, speaking of stories, though, I you told this hysterical story that I, I would love for you to tell again. Uh, you told it at Provisors about the investors that came with you to Japan, and you guys accidentally oh. walked into the wrong store. But before we get into that, we're going to take yeah. a quick break. We're going to hear a word from uh, our sponsor, and then we'll go right back. And uh, yeah, uh, we're going to take a quick break right now. Hey, Thrivers, do you hear a certain difference in quality? That's because this podcast quality is made possible by Squadcast. Virtual recordings have become easier than ever with Squadcast Studio Quality SaaS Remote Recording Platform. This cloud-based technology secures your files and minimizes post-production for all podcast producers. And I should know because I am one. Heighten the experience of your podcast by clicking the link in the show notes below. This podcast is a Mr. Thrive Media production. Mr. Thrive Media builds communities through its content marketing and networking events. During this pandemic, our dedicated team commits to the value of connection by producing podcast content while extending a helping hand towards artists and entertainment professionals. Mr. Thrive Media puts its values first by supporting small businesses and empowering emerging artists. For more information, visit www.mrthrive.com. That's mrthrive.com. And we're back. Uh, so, so, so for those who were a part of the first part of it, you know, we, we talked, we talked a lot about, you know, some of the different stories and a lot of different works in entrepreneurship, but there was a certain story that, that you shared with, uh, me and the provisors group that I just ha I, I just needed, I just need it on this podcast. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's kind of, it's laughable now. I'm sure in that moment, it didn't feel good, but can you share that story when you took you and a few investors to, uh, to Japan? So the context for that is. You know, many years after uh, the business was doing well and um, thriving, speaking of thriving. Um, good use of word. I, that's a good word, yes. Um, in fact, at the time, we were kind of like, I was, I was like Mr. Thrive. I was very, oh. very you know? um, And yeah, and, there, and I had some offers to buy the company. And so, you know, I have, I have investors, I have a VC on board. And so I thought, hmm, okay, this might be a good time to exit. So we went through a whole process and we were big enough at that time to have like a, a real serious investment bank on board and doing a process for um, selling. 
we had a lot of different interests and tons of meetings. And we came down to this private equity firm, which seemed like they were going to be the ones who were going to make us the best offer. We really hit it off. Um, great guys based out of the Midwest. And they had come to LA a few times, met with a team in LA. They said, all right, well, before we close the deal, we want to fly to Tokyo and see Japan and meet you there and have you show us around. I thought, fantastic. You know, anytime anybody's ever visited me in Tokyo, nobody's gone away from Tokyo saying they had a bad time. Right. So, right. So this was a, a layup. Um, but what I didn't realize was going to happen was, first of all, um, these guys are Orthodox Jews. So I'm, I'm Levy. I'm also my family. My father's side of the family is Jewish. So I'm not saying that in any negative way about them but I'm definitely not from an Orthodox family. Orthodox Jews are extremely conservative in a lot of ways. Um, and I didn't really realize that about them because you know, it doesn't come up in the day to day. Well, they flew to Japan, we went out to dinner, we had you know, sushi, sake, everything, it was great. Um, they didn't eat shrimp. And then we, <laughs> we went into a manga shop they wanted to see kind of manga on the ground. And Akihabara, one of the most famous places for uh, kind of otaku culture, so geek culture in Japan, um, has a number of massive manga shops. And some of them feature what they call doujinshi, which are fan-made, um, sort of like amateur mangas that are sold by authors themselves. And a lot of this stuff is pretty pornographic. If you have looked at porn on the internet and if any of you say that you have not you're a liar you're a liar um, you're a liar you're Except maybe aware of a category called hentai well hentai was not known at the time now because of the internet and porn and everything hentai is a category is at least known but basically <laughs> hentai comes from japanese manga culture <laughs> and there are a lot of interesting um um well, put it this way, the, the girls that are presented in a lot of these manga are not over 18. Even though they're manga, they're, it's clear that they're not over 18. And in, in our culture, in, in, the, in the States, that would be unacceptable. You know, you might um, be into hentai, but you don't want to look at child porn, basically. Right. Um, in Japan, age and the way they draw um, girls is not culturally um, immoral in the way that it is in the U.S. It's just a totally different lens when it comes to like, you know, I don't know, cultural um, um, moral systems. And so we walk into this store, we're in the first floor, all the top hits, great. Second floor, more, a little bit more geeky stuff, sci-fi, they're into it. We get to the, finally we get to the fifth floor, which is where all the hentai is. Oy. These guys they almost passed out in the staircase as they walked into it. I oh mean, my they, God. Yeah. Their eyes just bulged out of their heads. They saw, cause you've got not only the, the mangas in the shelves, you have posters and I mean, you, you're not, you're not going to miss it when you walk into that. <laughs> that, that and they were like, we got to get out of here. We got to get out of here. And we left it. I didn't really know what was going on except that they were panicking. And then we leave and they tell me, you can't do the deal. And that literally killed uh, a sale that would have made me personally and my investors extremely wealthy. But wow. that's life. I've had much more richer experiences living my life than I had that the money could have given me. 
Um, so I don't regret it. However, it was really, I look back and I thought, God, why did I take them to this hentai floor? What was I thinking? You know? Right. Yeah. There's only so but, much you can control in that situation. Oh, what a, what a, yeah. it's, it's cringeworthy. You know, it's, it's, there's so many different <laughs> levels of cringe in that story. So I, I, I do enjoy that. I mean, did, did you end up ever getting a different investor in that situation? Did you were able to ever find that replacement? Well, that, ultimately, it's interesting because um, we, Tokyo Pop, I've gone through a lot of ups and downs. And I talk about this because this was the manga boom in, in the U.S., manga and anime boom in that first wave was starting to, it already, this is when the peak had hit and it was just starting to crash. Got it was it. in the very beginning. So my timing was just, I'd say six months off. And ultimately Warner Brothers made us a really good offer, but my main investor was greedy and said no. Hmm. And so in the end, we did not sell the company. Um, and a couple of years after that, the economy crashed. And during that time, we almost went completely out of business, but I kept the company alive, um, took a pause in the business for a few years, came back and then um, restarted publishing about five years ago. And now we're in another massive manga and anime boom. So uh, well, there we patience. go. There we go. Yeah. And I imagine the yeah. pandemic uh, just gave a lot of people time to hunker down and just really explore this new uh, cultural literary approach to just storytelling. It, really. It's truly amazing. Like in the beginning of uh, COVID, the first few months, it was an existential problem. I thought, wow, this is another massive hit that I don't think we could overcome. This could be the end of the company. Somehow, you know, honestly, government support really, really helped us. We got the PPP. Good. We got um, uh, some SBA support. And in the end, we pulled through. And then by the end of last year and um, by January this year, 2021, manga was on fire. Right. Wow. Yeah. And our sales like from 2019 have doubled. Well, congratulations. That's uh that's huge and I, I can I can only imagine this is only the start to even more greatness that comes along with Tokyo Pop. That's that's really exciting. I'm really happy to hear that for you. Thanks, Jess. Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, now, it's all for the reader. Yeah. Now today you are in Germany, right? Yes. I yeah. got to imagine that in that time you've had the chance to enjoy some really incredible food and I know that you're a foodie. What are some of the most memorable meals for you that you've enjoyed? Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I've ate, I've been very fortunate that I've, um, first of all, I've traveled all over the world in my career. I've done a lot of different things. And um, part of my, uh, part of what I love about what I do is, is travel. And so I've been, I also do some film stuff over the years. So I've been at film festivals, I've been at comic book conventions, other, other events. And some of my favorite food cities, well, first of all, Japan's amazing. Yeah. You like food, you have to eat in Japan. There's just so many Michelin star restaurants. Just, but you can just walk off the street to a local little side shop, and it's amazing. Um, just some of the fun experiences, though, like in Japan. I remember one time we were in a sushi bar, and people love to take you out there. So over the years with business, I've had people take me, you know, all night long trying to kind of outdo um, others who have taken me out. But one time we we're in the sushi bar, we had lots of sake and we're getting near kind of the end. And they said, okay, we have something special for you. Whoa. Give me a glass. Yeah. They give me this glass. They're like, okay, this is very special sake. You have to just like 
You have to you have to uh, look at it. You have to drink it. You have to swirl it around in your mouth a bit, and then you swallow it after you swirl it around. And I look, and there were about seven little fish swimming around in the glass of uh, sake. Whoa. Okay. Yeah, so, so you drink it, and then you have to keep it in your mouth and chew them before you swallow it. It's not like fraternity house with the goldfish in your swallowing the gold. <laughs> right. You have to actually so chew the fish and enjoy the taste. Oh my so, God. So, okay. Uh, that wow. was a crazy one. So how weird does that feel when it's, when it's, you realize you're eating something alive the way a dinosaur would, you know, you, oh, yeah. you, you know, well, how does that feel? Yeah. I mean, it's that, that was actually just, we were pretty drunk at that point. So it was just, <laughs> we're going for it. It's we're on the ride, but there's all kinds of like, there's the delicious food thing that I think is also what you're asking about. And there, there's, there's many, I mean, I've had, uh meals in japan that that would blow anybody's mind but i've also had meals in like lisbon portugal was one of my favorite meals so there's there's a culture in japan and in asia overall they call chinmi and chinmi stands for rare taste that's literally what the characters uh, stand for and when they when it's almost a competition to find what's the kind of most exotic weird food that you can eat uh, like what's the chinmi of this place or I went on this trip and did you try chinmi and some of the weirdest chinmi that i've had in my life not just in japan but overall is probably the most disgusting one was in korea i went ahead and ate dog oh no yep oh. yep that, and that i have to say was my request i i had a, i had business partners there and I'd heard that, you know, in the past in Korea, you could eat dog, but it has become, you know, very, very, um, you know, under, almost underground. It's like the old generation. It's not something that young people would even think of eating. Yeah, but, I, I wouldn't. Yeah. You know, yeah. And so it's not like, I don't want to make an image like, oh, in Korea, they eat dog all the time. That's not true. Okay. Um, but this old generation they had, you know, when you're starving after the war, et cetera. Um, and so I, I asked my business partner, hey, is it true that you can eat dog? And he said, yeah. Um, I said, I, could I try it? And he said, yes, I'll arrange it. So my next trip, because I'm just adventurous. Yeah. I want to try. I mean, we eat cows. We eat all kinds of things. I've eaten whale in Japan. I've eaten turtle blood soup. I've had, um, I've eaten um, fish sperm. I've eaten all kinds of crazy stuff. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so the dog thing was like, you know, I might as well try it. And I had this image like, hey, I'm just going to pick out the breed that I want. And they're like, you know, cook it up like Korean style, like, you know, Korean barbecue. And, you know, I have a little Korean barbecue with, you know, my favorite collie. It's not how it played out. You don't get to pick the breed. You go in and it's basically they only eat like mutts, basically. And they don't even barbecue them. They, they, they boil it. And if you've ever imagined, like, you know how, like, if you have a dog, like when the dog gets wet and there's a, the, the, it just there's this nasty smell that that can come out. Imagine that times like fifty. Wow. Yeah, and it was the most disgusting smell I've ever smelled. I was on the verge of puking just from smelling it. Oh. I honestly like at that point didn't even want to have a bite, but I figured I kind I came that far, so I yeah. had a little bite of it, and it was the nastiest thing I've ever eaten in my oh. life. Like there's a reason why human beings 
generally don't eat dog. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's so, that, that was heartbreaking to listen to. I got to say, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm affected. Yeah, I mean, I've had, like I said, all kind of uh, raw, raw horse is something that they eat, that they eat in Japan. They also eat that here in Europe. So, you know, there's all kinds of weird food that people eat around the world. I would eat horse. I would eat horse personally. Try to think. I, I recently learned that sea urchin is incredibly good and a very interesting texture. Sea urchin's amazing. Uni. 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 This is actually one of the best foods I've ever had. Oh, really? I was up once on this little island in the north of Japan. Okay. That actually later got destroyed by the tsunami, which is another like tragic uh, layer to the story. But yeah. when I was there, I was in this tiny little kind of Airbnb, not Airbnb, but it was what they call a yokan, which is um, it was really technically a minshuku, which is a local um, villager rents out their their place for people to stay the night and then they feed them breakfast in the morning. So it's kind of like what a traditional bed and breakfast would be like in the U.S. And it was on this little island and the owner, the guy who was the father of, of this place was a fisherman. And in the morning, he brought out for us all this breakfast that had the freshest uni sea urchin I've ever had. He literally had caught it right outside um, uh, where, where we were staying on the island. And it was still just caught and sliced in half so that the, the bristles are still moving and you put your spoon in it Whoa. and dig it out and put that on the rice and it is insane. Well, so I, good. I would love to try that. Wow. I, I'm, I'm a foodie myself. The, the weirdest thing I've ever eaten was in Wales was uh, black pudding. Have you ever had that? Is black pudding brains? No, it's it's when they when they slaughter a pig, it's whatever comes out of the pig's neck, and then they just take that and they fry it into a patty. And and you know what? It was weird because so the, the story behind that is that when I was traveling Europe, I, I lived with my aunt. I stayed with my aunt in Wales in this town called Caerphilly, and Caerphilly is known for being a, a town with a castle in the middle of it that Henry VIII tried to destroy uh, when he reigned uh, in, in in the in the UK. And um, now you have the ruins of this castle and there's this normal town around it that surrounds it. And it's actually really cool. My aunt just lived up the hill from that castle back in the day. And um, and I remember I did a little solo adventure because she had to stay behind and grade some papers. And I walked down to this diner uh, to get breakfast. And the side of every single meal was black pudding. And I was like, what is that? My first thought is this chocolate. What is this chocolate pudding that they're about to serve me, right? Well, I asked the lady, what is it? And she goes, well, um, it's, um, well, how do I put it? Um, well, let me give you a sample. She wouldn't tell me what it was. She just wanted to give me a sample, right? So she brings over a sample and it looks like a veggie patty that you would get at Trader Joe's, right? you know? And I thought, oh, this, this looks crunchy and delicious. And I chop, I cut into it and I ate it and it's just savory and kind of crunchy and chewy. I'm like, okay, that's good. I don't, I don't really mind it. Not too bad. So I had a second one with my meal. You know, I guess they're so unpopular that they were just wanting to give it to me for free. So uh, I go home. And by the way, my aunt is vegan. So I told her what I ate. And she's like, you ate what? <laughs> she got really mad at me. <laughs> but how was I supposed to know? You know, that was that was pretty funny. So at the restaurant, they never ended up telling you what it was. Right, right, right. And then I, that, my aunt, my vegan aunt was the one who told me what what black pudding is. And she was so wow. horrified that I ate that. But um, I do like trying that food. Haggis. Yeah. Haggis was not as gross as everyone made it seem to be. I think it's actually really good. 
there's there's I'm not it's funny because for me if it's from the ocean it doesn't matter what it is I'm down for it okay but if it's from the land I have a lot more reticence about what I'm gonna eat interesting interesting so it's yeah. very particular I don't know why got it something about you know it's in the seawater must be healthy it's clean right you know? <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. I, and that, I think that's actually a really interesting way to approach it. So I, I got a question for you. Looking towards the future, what is in line for Tokyo Pop and what is in line for you personally project-wise? Okay. Um, so Tokyo Pop, because things are going well and I feel like we've really got our sea legs back and we have – I think there's there are – you know, in the beginning when Tokyo Pop was first building everything out, manga didn't – exist as a as a category and anime was still extremely underground and so what we wanted to do then was popularize it and just get as many people to of course um, buy the product and that was when you sold books you sold dvds um, now everybody already knows what it is there's a lot of opportunity for fans to access it it's much more i think it's it's the job is not finding a way to popularize it the job is finding a way to specialize in, in unique aspects of the culture. So for us right now, we have um, our, the thing that's driving our current success is a line of all-inclusive romance books. So um, we call it Love, Love, and the, the tagline is Love Who You Love. And there's a lot of LGBTQ stories it's it's very much about inclusive romance and i love that um, yeah and it's doing very well there there's a lot of um i would say people are looking for something that's more representative of where the world is now and where they want it to be um, than traditional stories that frankly don't really um connect with people a lot of people as much anymore so that kind of thing and i think also developing and working with young artists that cross cultural boundaries, that cross mediums and have concepts and ideas that can be a next franchise. That That's something that I feel like we're in a good position to, to support. Well, have I told you about my network, the network about the artists and creatives, the young ones who are getting started, who yeah you should come you absolutely. should come come and be a part of it i would love for you to come and check that out because i'm would, telling you be fantastic. yeah there, there's so many amazing stories that a lot of these young writers and creators have to tell and many stories in which can transcend into the world of anime and manga for sure so i i yeah. this is me cordially inviting you to come to one of our events at the mr thrive network i would love to have you at them Oh, thanks. Yeah, no, I, I will take you up on that for sure. Amazing. Amazing. Great. And what about for you personally, project-wise? What's going on there? So for me, it's interesting because I'm at this later phase of my life. Um, I, I spent the first 50 years, so the first half century, as an adventurer. You know, going out there, blazing trails, having tons of fun, having ups and downs, uh, lots of heartache, but really being on my own, being independent. Now at this phase, I have a new family, my first child. I have a second one on the way. Congratulations. Thank you. And I feel like I'm going into this kind of maybe, I don't want to say last phase of my life, but definitely um, the last you know third of my life. And I'm not 
I'm not the guy that's going to run out there with a new business and work 100-hour weeks like I did back then. It's not fair to my family. I want to give the time to, to them. But what, I can, what I've learned that I can do is I can support young entrepreneurs. So I've become an investor. I um, have invested recently. I have a portfolio that right now um, has six different companies in it. Wow. Mainly, yeah, it's, it's, it's growing fast. Um, I don't have tons of money, but, you know, I put in a bit of money and then I also give, um, you know, I give advice um, in, a, in a way that the entrepreneur uh, will hopefully benefit from. And they generally, the, the companies that I invest in relate to what I call content tech. So areas that are right where content and technology are converging. So there's a business that's going to move the needle in terms of how we can use technology for storytelling purposes or use, yeah, more of that than use storytelling for, for technology purposes. I would say that the top technology is driving the experience of storytelling and audience reaction. I love that. And that, that's something that very much resonates with me, all the kind of content that could be cre created just for the, the embedderment, I think, of, of people who are the recipients of that. Yeah, some really interesting businesses um, um, are are being created nowadays, and we get in pretty early stage. Um, there's a couple later stage deals I've done just to try them out, um, but really the most influence we can have is at the earlier stages of a business. Well, I think that's I think that's incredibly generous, and I think that there's so many businesses out there that uh, need that, especially today. That, that extra bump just to get them to that next stage in their career and their ability to the, to get outreach that will help them grow. And I have nothing but respect for what you're doing. So thank you for sharing that. Thanks. Stu, it's exciting. you are a prestigious man. You're a gentleman for being here. And I'm, I've been loving everything that you said, except for the dog story. But <laughs> <laughs> um, someone listening to this right now wanted to support you. What is the best way they can uh, reach out to you or the best way that they can support your business? Well, it's we haven't decided whether or not to do it. Um, but and I actually haven't really spoken to anybody about it publicly yet. But for Tokyo Pop, our core publishing business in the US, we're actually thinking about open up opening up some shares to the public through an equity crowdfunding offering. Wow. Um, yeah, it's not something we've decided to do yet. We're we're on the fence, to be honest, because you know there's there's good and bad that can come out of that. But next year will be our 25th year anniversary. Okay, it will have been a, a quarter of a century that we've been in business, and you know I've been thinking about raising a little bit of money to do some of the things that we want to do. We don't need it desperately, but we can all you know you can always use capital as a business. But instead of going out and kind of raising money from you know, traditional private equity firms or places like that, maybe there's a way to open up to fans and let them invest in the business and own a part of it as a thank you for the last 25 years. So this is something that we're thinking about. Um, if we don't end up doing it, I'm sorry for anyone listening who might be interested, <laughs> but you know, I don't want to, I don't want to kind of speak too soon. I'm just being just a little tease. We're, yeah. We're just, we're looking at it and, and, um, I've had people who have told me that we're actually a, the perfect type of business to do that with because it is a lot of work and and you have a lot of people that then you want to um, engage with and, and and keep in touch with, which is an effort, you know. Um, but I would say sign up for our, our email list on our website, tokyopop.com, and you'll get information about our products. You might not be interested specifically in, in that, but if you are interested one day, 
um, next year in um, buying some stock if that opportunity arises. Of course, we're going to tell the people on that list about that. And then we also have great manga and, and other fun stuff. So yeah, come to our website. I also have a personal website, StuLevy.com. And you can reach me there too. Well, I'm definitely going to check that out. And please consider me an early investor because I love the idea of investing in what you guys are doing and seeing it grow the way it's it's currently going. So congratulations awesome. on that. Yeah. Thank you, Chaz. Hey, well, maybe just for you, I'll do it. How's that? Deal. You got it. Uh, Stu, I have one last question for you. Okay. It's a, a question I ask everybody on this podcast. Okay. What will you be famous for? Well, I mean, right now, it's pretty easy if I died tonight in bed, which would be the best way to die. Um, I think people think of me as the guy that brought manga to the West, you know, to, to America. And um, I like to think of that as more I bridged uh, foreign culture, Japan, um, with another culture, my culture, America, in a way that nobody was really familiar with at the time. And so I'm very proud um, of one quick story. Um, a former assistant of mine, I remember we went to Japan together and there were a lot of kind of you know, non-Japanese people that were clearly foreigners, white, black, uh, you know, Latino, um, you know, different types of, of ethnicities there. And I said, wow, there's so many foreigners in Japan now, gaijin, there's so many gaijin nowadays. And he said, yeah, well, honestly, part of that is, you know, you're kind of the guy that made part of that happen. Um, and I thought about that and, and was was really proud of that. I thought that's really cool. If there's a, a generation of people in the U.S. that were exposed to a completely foreign culture and embraced it enough that they wanted to go visit it because of effort that, that uh, me and my team did, that's something we can be proud of. So one day will i be famous for things other than that you know maybe maybe not but even if it's just that that's what's great about the last part of my life the next 20 30 years is i've already accomplished something that i i feel like um has has made my life worth living for and now i can just kind of have fun uh be with my family uh, support other entrepreneurs and um enjoy enjoy the rest of the ride well, Stu, I'm incredibly envious of this journey that you've uh, had the chance to be on, and I, I can only I can only hope to aspire to, to similar uh, results that you've created. And uh, you know, I've given you enough congratulations. So I'm not going to say congratulations again, but you know, it's it's really been a pleasure to have you on the show, uh, Stu Levy. Everyone, uh, this has been just a fantastic experience. Thanks for being on the show. Jess, thanks for having me, and congrats for what you're doing. I love it, and your microphone's amazing. And next time we have to talk about cycling because the bike is back. Absolutely. Sounds like a plan. Can't wait. Thank you for listening. This podcast releases bi-weekly on Fridays. To attend one of our networking events, visit the registration link in the show notes or go to www.mrthrive.com. Would you like to be a guest on our show? Email chaz at mrthrive.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.